some of you know, yeah, some of you will know, some of you are like Liz, clueless, okay, okay. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> yeah, back in the, uh, back in the 60s and, and 70s, I think even before that on radio, uh, there was a, a popular television show called Dragnet. It was, a, it was a crime drama that depicted the activities of a Los Angeles police detective named Sergeant Joe Friday. And accompanied by his, his various partners, they tackled routine police cases and they, and they faced uh, new challenges uh, along the way. As a child, I watched old reruns of this show on a weekly basis. And I remember the quote that was often spoken by Sergeant Friday when he questioned a witness about a case. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. I like this quote because it applies to our Christian faith. And what I mean by that is that our faith is rooted in fact. Not once upon a time fairy tales and fables. Not some mystical experience. Not the result of a wild imagination or some creative speculation. Not even hearsay. But facts. And these facts come from the accounts of credible and reliable eyewitnesses who recorded for all history what they saw and they heard concerning Jesus. This morning we are beginning the first letter of John. The same John who was a fisherman and became one of the original twelve disciples of Jesus. Part of the inner circle, along with his brother James and Peter. John was the one who would care for Mary after Jesus was crucified. And it's this John who wrote the Gospel of John. Three letters and, as we already know, the book of Revelation. All written to testify and to reveal the truth about our Lord. So if you have your Bible, 
turn to 1 John. Not the Gospel of John, but 1 John chapter 1. And we will read the first four verses. 1 John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Are we there? Okay. We are told, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This letter opens with the words, what was from the beginning. Words that remind me of the very first words written by John in his Gospel. In the Gospel of John, this is how he started. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Then later in verse 14, John adds this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, the glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In his Gospel message, John tells us that Jesus is the Word of God. He's eternal. He's from the beginning. He's the basis of of existence for all things. And not only that, amazingly, He took on 
flesh and chose to reveal himself as a man during his earthly ministry. In his gospel, John speaks of the deity of Christ. He's fully God. He's fully God. And in his letter of 1 John, he stresses the Lord's humanity. He's fully man. Now, why would John stress the humanity of Jesus right out the gate in this letter? Because in the early church, during the first and second centuries, false teachers called Gnostics had wiggled their way into congregations, claiming they had some special knowledge that no one else had. They possessed secrets only known to a select few. They claimed to have new and improved insights that ordinary Christians did not have. And they promoted heresies that caused a lot lot of doubt and confusion about Jesus. The Gnostics claimed that the Spirit was good. The Spirit was good. And that all physical matter All flesh was evil. They taught that the spirit was separate and untouched by the fleshly influences. No matter what the flesh did. Therefore, the flesh could sin as much as it desired. And the Spirit would be unaffected. As a result, they led very immoral lives. Now, on top of that, since all flesh is considered evil... And Jesus was good. They concluded that Jesus did not have a real physical body. He only appeared to have one. He only seemed to be a man. They suggested that Jesus was only a spiritual being, like a phantom or an apparition, 
denying that he was God in the flesh. And the problem with this false teaching was that it undermined the core truth of the gospel. Namely, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about it. If Jesus did not have a real physical body, then he did not really die and suffer on the cross. It would be merely an illusion to them. And if Jesus did not have a real physical body, then he could not have risen bodily from the dead. So without the actual death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no salvation for us. This Gnostic heresy was very dangerous. And fortunately, these false teachers moved on. But the damage they created was done. So John needed to meet this false teaching head on by telling these believers what he knew about Jesus to shore up their foundation with the facts. So right out the gate, John makes it abundantly clear. He repeats the same point over and over that his knowledge of Jesus and the knowledge of the other apostles who followed Jesus was based on their first-hand eyewitness experiences and not the result of some fictional religious beliefs. Now, I learned over the years in law enforcement when receiving information from someone I essentially needed to evaluate two things. Okay? Two, only two. Two things. The message and the messenger. The message and the messenger. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So what was their message? In this passage, it was simple. God chose to openly reveal Himself. That's what manifested means. He chose to openly reveal Himself. And the way He did that was in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Word of life In the flesh. And at the very beginning of his earthly ministry, the apostles like John were right there with him. From the start, New Testament writers like John and Matthew and Peter, all apostles, had been with Jesus. They watched him. 
They studied Him. They heard Him. They touched Him. They ate with Him. They lived with Him. Heck, they were even chastised by Him. They heard Jesus forgive people of their sins. Something only God could do. They witnessed Jesus raise people from the dead. They were there when He calmed the storm and calmed the sea. They watched Jesus walk on water. They saw His authority over demons. They saw His compassion towards the needy. They witnessed Jesus giving sight to the blind. They watched as He caused the deaf to hear and the moot to speak. They saw Him healing the crippled and the lame and the leper. They were there when Jesus fed over 5,000 on one occasion and 4,000 on another. They witnessed Jesus publicly crucified on a Roman cross. They saw an empty tomb. John was the first one there. Apparently, he ran like a gazelle. And later, they saw the risen Savior. In fact, John was present with the rest of the disciples when Thomas said, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's what Thomas said. Eight days later, the resurrected Lord shows up. And Jesus invites Thomas to put his finger in his hands and his side and to feel for himself that he had indeed risen bodily from the dead. Because they were there, John and the other disciples could confess, just as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. What a confession. This wasn't some second-hand religious experience they were told about. They were there. They walked with Him. They knew Jesus face to face. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was the Word of life who appeared in the flesh. That was their message. But what about the messengers? Were they credible and reliable? Well, let me answer that question with a question. 
if Peter and Matthew and John had fabricated their message, if their eyewitness accounts were complete lies, if they did not see a risen Savior, why would they have put themselves through the persecution and the terrible suffering and even death that accompanied their message. Peter was imprisoned. And tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down. Because, that's bad, because of the message. Matthew was killed with the sword in Ethiopia. Because of the message. John faced martyrdom when he was boiled, boiled in a huge basin of oil during a a wave of persecution in Rome. Boiled in oil. After surviving... John was then sentenced to the island of Patmos because of the message. And here's something I want to point out. It's not so important how these eyewitnesses suffered and died. What is important is the fact that they were all willing to suffer and die. Not for what they believed. For people will die for what they believe all the time. But they were willing to suffer and die for what they said they saw and heard. That's different. They were willing to suffer and die because of what they saw and heard. They were eyewitnesses. They could not deny what they personally experienced. They knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that what they saw and heard was real. And they would not renounce their faith in Jesus, even if it cost them their lives. And it would. And they wrote it all down for us. Think about this for a moment. We are reading a letter. We are reading a letter from a man who actually walked and talked and touched and followed Jesus. Think about that. But that brings up another question. After some 2,000 years, 
And since there are no known biblical, original biblical documents, is this letter from John and other documents like it written way back when still reliable to us in the here and now? Or asked in another way, do our Bibles accurately represent the original writings? That's the question. As a reminder, the original biblical documents written way back when were done so on materials like papyrus and parchment, and they were perishable. And over time, and with the handling by people, these written documents became worn out. And so working from the original documents... Copies were routinely made by church scribes. Then there were the circular letters. You ever heard that term? A circular letter. This letter by John, for example, was not written to a specific church or to a particular person. Instead, it was meant to be a circular letter sent from one church to another. A church would receive the original document. A scribe would make a meticulous word-for-word copy of it. Even count the letters and count the words to ensure the copy was exact. Then, send the letter on to the next church, and so on, and so on. Again, over time, with the handling by people, the documents became worn. The copies eventually became worn, and additional copies were made. And I say all of that to say this. Just for the New Testament alone. Just the New Testament. Historians have access to over 5,000. 5,000 of these surviving Greek manuscripts. And when a comparison is done, they are... 99% in agreement with one another. Meaning, they remained consistent with the original writings. And the reason the 1% are found to be different can be attributed to minor grammatical mistakes. Instead of a comma, it should have been a period. 
John. So the message is true. It's based on eyewitness accounts given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The messengers can be trusted, for in life and in death, they did not waver. And we can be confident that what we read today is an accurate reconstruction of their original writings. John proclaimed what he knew about Jesus. The right Jesus. The one he personally saw and heard and touched. And knowing the right Jesus, he says, you may have the right fellowship with us, the apostles. In verse 3, John writes, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In this passage, John introduces us to the word fellowship. Which is an important word for us. We say it all the time. But it's more than just a potluck social. The word fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia which has several meanings, but at its core, it holds the idea of possessing and participating and sharing something in common. That's what it means at its core. Fellowship. Two or more fellows on one ship. They have something in common. The same ship. That's what John has in mind when he thinks about fellowship. He speaks of a a common bond. He speaks of a shared partnership. And he presents this word fellowship from two different perspectives. A vertical perspective, looking upward to our union with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and a horizontal perspective, looking outward to our relationships with one another. And then he makes a connection that true fellowship with one another is the result of genuine fellowship with God. I like how Stephen Cole explains this with an illustration. This is what he says. 
imagine that you have come on hard times. You're homeless, penniless, and you're sleeping on the sidewalk. Your tattered clothes and an old, dirty blanket are barely enough to keep you warm during the freezing nights. Your meals consist of whatever you can find in the dumpster. You have lost contact with all family and friends. You got the picture? As you sit on the sidewalk, suddenly, the presidential limousine pulls up to the curb. The president, and you can choose whichever one you like, gets out and invites you to join him. You get in and are whisked to the airport where Air Force One is waiting. You fly to Washington and are driven in the presidential motorcade to the White House where your room is ready. There are new, clean clothes and all the food you can eat and servants to meet your every need and whim. But more than that, to your astonishment, the president treats you as a friend. He shares his heart with you and wants you to share your heart with him. At first, you're so dazzled with this incredible change of events that you're only aware of the president himself. But after a while, you realize you're not there alone. There are many others who have experienced the same thing. And as you exchange your stories and talk of how the president has helped each of you, your relationships with, with each other begin to deepen. That's an unbelievable fable, right? That's unbelievable. Not really. For if you have come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's some truth reflected in that illustration. Jesus found you and me in the gutter, so to speak. We were helpless and hopeless. We were lost in sin when Jesus found us and rescued us. In the salvation that Jesus provided, He included you and me in His kingdom and made us part of His family. And as we enjoy fellowship with Him, 
we discover brothers and sisters who know the same Jesus we do and have a similar life-changing, life-transforming experience and stories. And this common experience, this common bond with Jesus leads us to fellowship with one another. That's what John has in mind. Reuben Welch wrote, Christians are not brought together because they like each other. But because they share a common life in Jesus. And are beginning and are learning how to love each other as members of the family. Yes, it is Jesus and me. Yes, it is Jesus and me. But God also made it for Jesus and we. Christian fellowship begins with a common fellowship with God which in turn leads to fellowship with other believers. They are connected to one another. And if our fellowship with God is neglected, then it's reasonable to conclude that our fellowship with fellow believers will be as well. Or said in another way, if you're not getting along with fellow Christians, you might want to look upward first. Then John concludes the opening to his letter with a personal touch. And he says this in verse 4. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. John has lived a long and full life. He has lived in the presence of Jesus during his earthly ministry. And he enjoys fellowship with God. He has joy. But, like a concerned parent, like a concerned parent, he links his joy with the welfare of others. His children. His spiritual children. John's joy will not be complete until his readers clearly understand who the real Jesus is and walks 
in that truth. In 3 John, verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. John was concerned about the welfare of others, so much so that he could not experience complete joy himself as long as they were struggling with doubt and confusion created by these false teachers. And so, inspired by the Holy Spirit, John will write to reveal the true nature of Jesus Christ. He will write to reaffirm their salvation. He will write to encourage them to walk in the life-transforming truth of the Gospel. And He will write to show them what genuine fellowship with God looks like and how that impacts our fellowship with one another. If they do so, their joy will be made full and His joy will be made If I could summarize these first four verses, I would say, joy is made complete by having the right beliefs in the right Jesus and participating together in the right fellowship. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this time in Your Word in 1 John. It's just, uh, it's just awesome to come to the realization that we are, we are reading words written by a man inspired by the Holy Spirit. A man who walked with You and talked with You, and touched You. I thank You, Lord, that You have, through, through time, have preserved these words for us. And I thank You, Lord, that these messengers like Matthew and Peter and, and John did not waver in life or in death. I thank You that we have these words to inspire us and to encourage us, to strengthen us, and to lead us to You. Father, may You be honored and glorified. Give us a passion and a zeal for Your Word. Thank You for who You are and what You do. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> On the way here, this little song kept ringing in my head. I'm not going to sing it, but you all know it. Sorry.
Ready? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak. We are weak. But he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. I may not fully understand it. I may not comprehend it. I might go through experiences that suggest otherwise. I may not feel like He loves me. Right? I may not have that warm, fuzzy feeling. But Jesus loves me. That is a fact. Irrespective of what I feel or what I experience. He loves me. And He loves you. Because the Bible tells me so. It's God's Word. And Jesus was the Word of God in the flesh. And what He did and what He said was captured and written down for you and me. And it's accurate. We can trust it. And that's amazing. Jesus loves me. And He loves you no matter what, because he said so. And to take it a little further, he proved it. He went to a cross to prove just how much he loves you and me. What else could he do? What else could he do to prove how much he loves you and me? I don't know. No. That's the ultimate, as far as I'm concerned, that is the ultimate expression of his love for me. And that he would do a righteous, a, a righteous God would do that for a wicked man. I like what Paul says. In that, or even though. We were yet sinners. Still in our sin. Still in it. Even though we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for me.
that's, that's amazing. I'm looking forward to our time in 1 John. It's going to be rich. It's going to be deep. It's going to cause us to think. It's going to cause us to evaluate. It's going to cause us to go deep. I look forward to it. Also, it could be a little uncomfortable. A little uncomfortable. But we need it. Maybe you're here this morning, and you know what? Maybe you could admit, I don't know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm just going through the motions. You know, I come to church. But I'm just going, I, I, don't, I don't have a relationship with Him. I know that. I would love to talk with you. Maybe you're looking for a church home. Just some place to belong, to have fellowship with people who are like-minded. That's what fellowship is. We have, we have something in common. We'd love to have you. Or maybe there's something else. You just need prayer. You just need prayer. Whatever it is, how the Lord moves you, however He leads you, I just ask that you'd respond to Him this morning in obedience. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for who You are. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. The Almighty God. <laughs> and amazingly, You give Your attention to us. You give an ear to our prayers. You take joy in our worship. I thank You, Lord. Thank You for Your patience and Your mercy and Your forgiveness and Your grace. Thank You for leading us and guiding us and correcting us. Thank You for including us in Your family. Thank You for who You are and what You do. Father, as we come, a, come to a time of our tithes and offerings, Father, I pray that You would bless what You have given to us. Help us, Lord, to give from a cheerful and generous heart. Bless the gift. Bless the giver, Lord God. Help us, Lord God, as a church to use Your money wisely. And Father, for our time afterwards, our time of sharing together. Lord, I pray that it would be true fellowship. Where we'd be mindful of our common bond in Jesus Christ. He is the reason we share with one another. He is the reason we come together. He is our all in all. Bless the food we partake, Lord. Bless those who have prepared food and brought food. And Lord, I pray that, that this time will be meaningful and we'll make true and lasting connections with one another. May you be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.